0: This is Scott Morey with GPG Advisors, and this is our next podcast in the RE Insight series, and we are very lucky and fortunate today to have Jody McLean with us, who's the Chief Executive Officer of Eden's, and for those that don't know, it's one of the nation's leading private owners and operators and developers of retail real estate, although I use the word real estate, you very much talk about, and we'll get into it, about places and hubs for communities. Um, So, Jody, thank you for joining us.
1: I'm, I'm pleased to have the opportunity. Thank you for inviting me.
0: So I, I want to start as we typically do and go earlier in your life, actually pre-working life, and talk about um, where you grew up, and um, we're going to get through this in more detail, but you have a fascinating background on where you went to school, even pre-college, um, but I know or at least believe you grew up in in Illinois, outside of city, I might be I think out Elgin, actually, but can you talk about sort of the earlier years and where you grew up and your family life?
1: Sure. I grew up in the western suburbs of Chicago. I was born in Elmhurst, and then spent my formative years in the Geneva St. Charles area, um, which was terrific. Uh, I would tell you I was enterprising from the age of six when I started my first business, which was an egg route, and then I moved into paper route, and then um, retrieving golf balls from the pond in the golf course and selling them back to uh, the golfers as they came by. Um, but I would add to that um, beyond my entrepreneurial ventures, the other big influence in my youth was competitive sports. Um, I played. I played a lot of sports. I played to win, and learned really early on from sports how to take risk and quickly recover from failure at a young age, which I would tell you I didn't realize at the time, but probably um, is one of the most important lessons a young woman can learn um, in her youth.
0: That's fantastic. And I want to go pre, because I know you went to Hotchkiss, which I want to talk about. Yes. And you were at, I believe, Elgin Academy, and What point did you go to Elgin Academy? And I don't know, and it would be interesting to understand sort of the the timing of when you went there to then go to Hodgkiss and what drove that. Of course, I know your father also went to Hodgkiss, which is...
1: Sure. Um, I went to, I kind of bounced around, I guess, in grammar school um, from going to Avery Coomley, which was in Downers Grove through the sixth grade. I spent seventh and eighth grade at Elgin Academy. Um, And then I spent high school at Hotchkiss, which is a prep school located in Lakeville, Connecticut. Um, And so my father's family um, was all in the Northeast. Um, My grandmother was up in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, um, and my father had gone to Hotchkiss. Um, so we celebrated the 10th year of co-education, I think my upper mid or my junior year there. So it, was, it had um, a relatively short history of coeducation. education um, but I, being the youngest of three girls, I think my dad saw me as his last hope to get somebody to follow in his footsteps there. Um, so I went to Hotchkiss as a freshman.
0: Well, Hotchkiss, for those that don't know, and i got to be honest with you, I didn't, but I I looked into <laughs> part of this call, it is unbelievable, actually, just the people that have gone there. So you take, actually, the entire Ford family outside of Henry Ford, right, between sons, grandsons, kids. You take the two gentlemen, I just, I'm just i picking some random ones, uh, Britton Hayden and Henry Luce, co-founders of Time Magazine,
1: mm-hmm.
0: 16, and then I go more recent, there's, Paul Slew of um, Pulitzer Prize winners, Tom Rice, was 82. And then a random one, which people might appreciate, is Jeff Bezos' his wife went there that graduated yes. in, in 88, actually, uh, McKinsey. And talking about sports, which I want to get into this, um, and in general your drive, because I had heard and read about the Jody's uh, egg right when you were six, but I believe at Hotchkiss, actually, you played uh, hockey, field hockey, squash, tennis, and swimming, you earned 11 varsity letters. You were also captain or co-captain of your team. I think it was your final year and your senior year and your dad, I don't know about Hotchkiss, but I know when he was at Yale, also played hockey, soccer and lacrosse. So I'd love I'd love to talk about that more and he just briefly touched on it a few minutes ago, but about um that competitive nature and sort of what got you into sports and then lessons learned maybe even today that you use from those times?
1: Sure. Um, I'm, I, I don't know. Idle time probably originally got me into sports when I was younger. Um, but I think for me, um, I did grow up in a family um, that encouraged, that encouraged um, competitiveness, not necessarily within the family, I think, which is a skill to be developed, but um, an attitude uh, that it was okay um, to take the court, take the field, the pool, and have an attitude of wanting to win. And I think more than that, understanding that um, along the path uh, to success are a lot of small defeats along the way. I think probably, for me personally, the best sport was tennis. Any set that you win, any match you win has points or or games along the way that you lose. And that ability to learn at an early age what it means to take risks and to fail and to have to quickly recover from from that um, has really helped me in looking back um, have courage and And I wouldn't say be fearless, but to have the courage to go out um, and to try and to do things maybe before you're 100 percent ready. Um, but I think it's been a distinguishing um, factor for me throughout my whole career. And I think as I look around and I see a lot of young women around me, I think one of the things that holds them back is just this pure fear of failure. Um, I would say more than confidence. These are confident young women, um, but feel like they have to be 100% or 110% ready before they take some risks. So as I've sort of moved through my life and had moments to think about um, what what has allowed me to do that, I, I just continue to give sports a lot of credit but I also think sports also gives you um, a spirit of humility, a spirit of courage, and, and absolute um, confidence. And so I think there's a lot to be taken away um, from those times.
0: So let's go, um, which is great and so true, I think, too. And I, I want to transition now to your time in um, South Carolina, because I think you actually, you, I know you did, you actually went to university there, University of South Carolina in 1986, if my memory's right. And what got you to choose that school and, and uh, attend there?
1: Um, so I wound up at the University of South Carolina because my godfather was the president of the university. Um, and South Carolina has truly distinguished itself with an honors college. Um, that is one of the most respected educational institutions in the Southeast. So I went in 1990, I mean, I went in 86. I went in 1986 from Hotchkiss to the Honors College at USC.
0: Gotcha. And then I know at some level um, we've talked a little bit about your father, but your your mother was huge in academics for over 50 years, I think, and... Is that where initially, when you talk about your godfather being, um, of course, with the <laughs> president of the school? Is that the connection, or was there some other connection? Um,
1: my, actually, my that was our connection to the university. My father and my godfather, Jim Holderman, had sat on the school board together um, when they were younger um, in in Elmhurst, Illinois, which is obviously where I was born, but. Is where that relationship formed with the Holdermans, and my mother um, was um, in education all her life, and really evolved in her edu- In her involvement in education, she started as a special an educator of special needs children, and took that, and then started several schools, and was responsible for several institutions, starting with some Montessori schools and then going really into urban neighborhoods, both in St. Louis and at the end of her career in South Carolina, and really helping convert uh, schools into both great institutions of education, but institutions of community that were not isolated in the single community in which they were, but that education comes not only in an academic format, but in a cultural and community format, um, so she really inspired what has come out later for me, not only a deep respect for education, but a really deep respect um, for bringing communities together.
0: And she sounds is like a, an amazing um, woman, I know, sadly passed, um, not that long ago. So uh, going to the University of South Carolina, uh, talk about sort of where you started after that, and at what point did you start thinking uh, real estate might be an interesting career or somewhere to work? (laughs)
1: Um, I think I started thinking that when I realized that in 1990 when I graduated and really wanted to return to Chicago, um, my goal was to return to Chicago um, to, to work downtown, but in 1990, as everybody knows, the economy was plunging into a recession. Um, we were in the middle of the s and crisis. Um, we had inflation that was, that was rising um, and resulted in huge um, unemployment, and in Chicago at that time, we had several large institutions and financial institutions file bankruptcy. So I had met Joe Edens through an independent study that I took at the university. Um, I was sitting in a honors economic class freshman, I mean the um, first semester of my senior year and was called on and obviously lost in my own thoughts and not paying attention. So the professor asked me what was on my mind and I honestly said, you know, I I'm sitting here, I'm gonna graduate in a few months, and everybody's taught me tools to calculate, tools to run financial models, but I've had no exposure to commerce. And I've had no exposure to that which creates commerce and drives commerce. And he said, Come see me after class, I said fine. And from there we developed a um an independent study class on entrepreneurs, and through that I met Joe Edens. And Joe Edens um, had huge influence in the state of South Carolina, both um, as a founder of what was then known as Edens Navant, what is now Edens, um, but also in several of the banks and the financial institutions in the state, um, and and several really important um, developments throughout the state. So he was one of the first entrepreneurs we met. I spent um, that semester sitting, studying, and meeting with lots of entrepreneurs. And so at the end of my senior year, Joe actually reached back out, and he offered me, this is May, April, May of 1990, offered me a position to come on as an analyst at Eaton's, um, and I respectfully turned down the opportunity because I was hell bent on getting back to Chicago. But when my father arrived for graduation promptly marched me right back into the office and told Ms. Readings I would be thrilled to accept the job offer. So I, I really got into real estate, I think, more out of necessity than desire. But after being here, um and, and I think in hindsight, I was so lucky to enter this industry in 1990 when things were really messy, it offered me incredible opportunities to learn, um, opportunities that I don't think that a young person would otherwise have. So we were dealing with the s debacle, um, the RTC had become our largest landlord. A Hurricane Hugo, which might not mean a lot to a lot of people listening, um, had ripped through the state of South Carolina in September of 1989, which left about 30 of the assets that Joe owned at that point in time sort of inside out and without roofs. And shortly thereafter, Revco, who was our second largest tenant, filed for bankruptcy. So there was no real estate issue, um, no real estate opportunity that I was not exposed to basically from the day I walked in the door.
0: So talk about, which is, uh, you're lucky and unlucky, say more lucky than not in that (laughs) regard, right? I think about...
1: Yeah, I think it's luck.
0: Yeah, when I think about, um, I spent some time with Rick Clark, who I got to know, when I was at General Growth and he yeah. on the board, and, and subsequent to that and he went through a bunch of cycles and he saw his father and his uncle's actually cycles, which look at what Brickfield does today make it even that much more kind of interesting. But if you if you go back to that time, which was and I was I was in real estate and, and trying to fight my way at that point in time as well. But talk about I think how lucky you were in regards to, to Joe Edens and I know you you know, you sort of figured out I think early in your career what his patterns were you tell a story about how, you know, you would get in early in the morning when he was in so you could get time with him. But I'd love to understand your relationship with um, Mr. Eden's early years kind of in your career and and what role he played.
1: Sure. He, um, I think, a benefit of growing up, in in Chicago and growing up close to a lot of people on the farm, I said you're an early riser. Um, I am well known and have been all my life is as a somebody who's out of bed somewhere between 4.30 and 5 every morning. And I quickly learned that during those times, Mr. Edens was always in the office by 5.45 in the morning. And I would make my way into the office, and he would get coffee. He had very ingrained patterns, and he would grab coffee. And I would just coincidentally always bump into him at the coffee maker. And we would just... He was so impressed that there was a young person at the office early, and we would... Um, he would slow down, and he'd ask me what I was working on. He'd ask me what was on my mind, and we'd have these exchanges of conversation. And from there, he would often say, "Why don't you work on this, or come in my office? Let me tell you what I'm working on. Do you think you could help me with XYZ? And so I think from day one, and this was this was um, not an unusual time in real estate. There weren't I had no professional women around me or peers um, that, that looked like me. So to have these opportunities with him, and he would give me small projects, and those projects would grow in scope. Um, but it really gave me time to learn the business of real estate. It gave me time to learn the business of Eden's inside out in a way that I'm not sure I would have otherwise gotten exposure to at such a young age but I think also really important to somebody starting out in their career Joe really spent time talking about the characters and the values of success as he saw the business and and the approach so I think that, yes, I learned a lot about real estate from from Joe, but I think I learned a lot about character, and that it was it was your character that ultimately would define success. so I think um, those kind of lessons to me throughout my whole career have continued to stick, the lessons that I learned from him, and also the lessons of intentionally putting yourself in places um, to be exposed to people who you can learn the most from So he he was a wonderful mentor early on in my career and
0: and what other mentors have you had uh, beyond him and what role they played
1: you know, I THINK AS I HAVE MOVED THROUGH, um, I'VE HAD WONDERFUL MENTORS WHO HAVE SAT ON OUR BOARD, um, AND I'VE HAD WONDERFUL SPONSORS um, THROUGHOUT OUR INDUSTRY, AND I THINK THAT'S ONE OF THE OTHER THINGS THAT I HAVE LEARNED IS THAT um, you, IF YOU'RE LUCKY IN LIFE, YOU HAVE BOTH MENTORS, PEOPLE THAT YOU CAN GO TO THAT CAN HELP YOU WORK THROUGH SITUATIONS, um, can help bring you intellect, but it is also the sponsors, the people who put themselves out there to really create opportunities um, have been really, um, just just have stuck with me and been very important throughout my career. And I have found that um, other senior women in this industry have played that role for me. Um, I've had board members who've played that role for me, and so I feel really fortunate, um, you know, to have, and I think as you, you evolve and you grow, um, your mentors, your mentors, your sponsors change, um, but I like to think that I've stayed close to all of them as I've moved through.
0: What about, you've touched on a couple times, but about the unique challenges of being, uh, a woman, and in your case a CEO, and, and there's more and more with time, which has been great. But even sort of today, but going back about the unique challenges being a woman within our space and sort of how you address that. And, you know, I'll share a brief story. I know you know her. We were talking before, but with Mary Lou Fiala, and I've known off and on for a while, and she talked about how she never got invited to, you know, drinks on Friday <clears> evening. She's also like, well, I never really wanted to go anyway. But at least I wanted the option to say no, and she shares around how she found ways to connect um that 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 worked for her but that were that were you know beneficial in different ways but anyway, I'd love to get you know your perspective over the last i mean going from nineteen ninety on about what those challenges are and um how you how you deal with them
1: um I think the first is just learning how to build your network because I think, I think what Mary Lewis said was, is right, um, that there weren't a lot of people early on who looked like me and to figure out how to put yourself squarely in the right places, I, I don't think always was easy or natural. Um, but I think I think for me, probably the unique challenge that I found was finding my own voice. I think yeah, as uh, as a woman, as a young girl growing up, we're socialized with certain behaviors. So I think that for me, transitioning into um, boardroom setting or transitioning into larger room discussions and settings, finding my voice, allowing my voice to be heard, taking that um, position at the seat. I, I believe that I probably approach situations and, and um, opportunities with a different, clearly different perspective. And I think then finding that voice that could be heard um and as more and more women appeared in those rooms with me, it became easier to to amplify or to be amplified by others so i think I think that's one of the unique challenges that I don't think people recognize um I think we talk about it more now than ever, so I think there's you know we at least at Edens and in circles in which I'm at, we always have men at the table when we talk about these kind of things. And men have their own unique challenges, but I think that's probably one of the larger ones that I've had. Um, and then, and then networking. I agree with Mary Lou, but I think that um, I've always felt comfortable putting myself in those positions. Um, and being you know in those networking positions, but I think finding finding a voice, a clear voice, and a rhythm to that in a room with a bunch of people who who communicate totally differently
0: well thanks for thanks for sharing your thoughts on that and um, I want to shift gears and talk about. Uh, what's happening today within real estate, specifically within retail, um, and about how, you know, you're navigating that and, and what you see the future holding. And I think, um, and we've talked before briefly and, and um, from my research as well, but I saw a phrase you said once, which was, you know, we're we're not chasing, I'm, I'm probably miswording, so I'll pause in advance, we're not chasing share a wallet, we're chasing share of time and you've been really consistent Absolutely. about you know per week three and a half trips per week and five hours and, and what that means and and all that as a metric is great then also about how you know ultimately you want to be and your properties and places want to be the center of community life and you're, you're very distinct, those things I just said are really distinct from everyone else I think it's great but I'd love for you to expand on that and, and share that in more detail.
1: Sure. So so there are three things to, to um for me that are most relevant in the world in which we operate, and that is money, time, and social needs. And I, I go to those because I will tell you that... Um, consumer confidence, consumer sentiment index right now are both hovering around 18-year highs. People are feeling great. But for 80% of Americans, wages have been stagnant and non-discretionary expenses have increased from 30% of their wallet share to 50% over the last several decades. So, um, so we we actually see that people have less disposable income, so that's, that's one of the broadest shifts that's happening in retail right now. There truly is less money to be spent. On top of that, I go to time. The one thing that has not changed in retail in the 28-plus years I've been involved is that... Women are still making somewhere between 75 and 85 percent of all retail decisions. And the truth is, they're probably heavily influencing the 15 to 25 percent they're not making. But if you look at her time, and really all Americans' time, our commute has increased over 12 minutes a day over the last several years doesn't sound like a big number until you take 12 minutes and you multiply that by five days a week, by 50 hours, by um, 50 weeks a year. You've lost 50 hours that you used to spend with your friends, your family, and in leisure activities. On top of that... Um, if we look at our time, we're working 10 hours longer per month than we were a few decades ago. So, when you start to add all these up, 72% of women now are working outside the home. If they have children, their their time, their discretionary time is impacted by another 2.3 hours per week. So, um, non-discretionary spending has been really impaired. Um, our time is, is truly, factually tighter. It's not just that we all feel busier. We actually have less discretionary time. And so you think, okay, all of that really works well for, for e-commerce being in our lives until you really study what's going on socially in this country and you think about who we are, all consumers, we are people, we are human beings, and we have a physiological need to be connected to others. So one of the rising epidemics in this country is isolation, loneliness, and depression. What's happening right now, and especially as we've all gotten busier, especially as we all rely more on our technology to supposedly be connected with one another, what's happening underneath that is that the number of people reporting no close friends has tripled since 1985. What we found is that um, a study came out that shows... Um, With data and science, that the lack of routine interperson social interaction and human connection is more dangerous to our health than smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, obesity, or alcoholism. So, for us and what we do, we can't think about our places, our developments, our merchandising, our design without thinking about um, the people that we're trying to serve. And so the people we're trying to serve um, do have less discretionary spending. They have less time, but they have a bigger need than ever to feel part of a community. So our goal is simply to say we have these canvases, we have these beautiful canvases in which if we design right, we make them extremely convenient, we make you feel great here, and we figure out how to engage with conversation at our places that um, prosperity follows. Prosperity follows um, economically, socially, culturally, and soulfully for all of our partners. And um, so, three-and-a-half trips, I I stand by that. We are successful. Our community is successful. Our retail partners are successful. If we can drive three-and-a-half trips per week, five hours of dwell time, which are enormous numbers. We just went through how tight her time is. Those are enormous numbers. She won't... Our, Our community members... Who won't travel, whether they come by public transport, whether they come by foot, whether they're driving their car, they're not going to travel more than 17 minutes to spend time with us. So we have to be very conveniently located. And we, we think that includes parking the car, getting out of your car. So everything about what we're doing has to be convenient. But she ha you have to feel great at our places. And those are two things that are hard to bring together.
0: Yeah, very hard to bring together. Um, and what you know, it's interesting, I'm just thinking of history and I'm whatever reason I think about World War Two and Eleanor Roosevelt and um a lot of people don't recognize but there was so much effort and she gets I think she get a lot of credit with her and her team around services for women. At that point, we talk about the first nurseries, prepared food, there were all these things, and of course it was different today. It was about liberating them to, you know, the workforce, female workforce, to, to help in the war effort, and that changed fundamentally, I think, the dynamics of, of, um, of that world. But you know, now it's almost like we're trying to liberate in some ways, allow them to live their lives and, right. and make the connections of what they lost you know, going back over time. It's interesting. And I don't, who do you see, I mean, generically, I could, I'm could. i sure you get put in a bucket um, with competitors, um, but your vision is really, is unique actually. I don't know if I've heard anyone else looking at how they, the assets they own, how they lease them, how they look at their involvement in the community. I, I don't know if I've had anyone else that has a similar vision. Is there anyone else out there?
1: Yeah, I I think I hope there are other people who have this same place because I think the role of the store has clearly changed and is going to continue to change, and so I think as people understand the role of the store, um, they will broaden that understanding from not just being the role of the store; it's being a place for engagement with with their customer, but more importantly, the role of the places to be a place where communities come together and engage. And we all learned early, early, early on, before we knew we were learning from Walt Disney, that when people feel good, they spend more money. Um, There's been now clear... Um, data that's come out that said for every 1% of additional time spent, 1.3% additional dollars are spent, and so the big transition, right, we're all going through with our retailers is understanding that, um, the value to our places cannot just be measured by the sales that happen actually within our four walls, but the foot traffic that happens, and, and the ability to truly for brand partners or retail partners to truly engage and make those connections. But for us, it's, it's a much higher purpose than just um, that wallet share. We really want our communities um, to, to come together. We want this to be the community gathering places.
0: Well, I guess there's a lot of people too Um, on the various classes of retail, real estate, uh, assets, talk about experience, but they don't define it. And my view is instead of saying the word experience, you define effectively what it is you're trying to achieve, which is great.
1: Yeah, for us, experience is really sort of simple. Um, Pulling it off is really hard, but it is truly conversation that happens between people, we have found, and there, there are some exceptions to, to this, but we have found that routine, dependable events are much more successful for, for us and for our places than these large-scale, um, big events that happen every once in a while. <laughs> I would I would say clearly holiday and holiday traditions are an exception to that, but even those are dependable and timely. But um, the small the small events, whether it's um, yoga out front, you know, every Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, or it's the run clubs, or it's the conversations. We do a lot of things around conversations and around the dinner table and inviting people of like mind who would not otherwise know each other to around tables at our places to enjoy conversation, to get to know each other. Art is becoming more and more important in that and it doesn't have to be um, large, expensive art. Sometimes it's local art. It's becoming great at... Helping our community members foster conversations, and when people feel a part of community, really, truly, great things happen.
0: So let me let me shift gears again, and um, we're getting closer to the end. I've got a few more questions. Okay. But, uh, what I want to ask now is about um, yeah, you I know, think about the role that Joe Eden played in your life, and and the opportunities he gave you, and so. I want to look at the reverse, and you say when there's people that are in your organization or outside that um, are earlier in their careers, what qualities um, impress you in people, actually, or that you notice that you, you value yourself, but you value those individuals and um, give them opportunities?
1: Um, I think curiosity, creativity... The ability to think rationally and problem solve are, are qualities that we look for.
0: Um, yeah, it's interesting in line with that because you hear uh, more and more about soft skills and hard skills, and the hard skills are getting automated and technology in some ways. And more and more, I talk about solving problems being a soft skill, but it's not an easy thing where people can. Have the competency or ability whether they've learned it or had it in some level to solve things they haven't solved before which I think for everyone's becoming more and more important
1: I think um, I hope we will see in America the rise once again of liberal arts education I have learned this having um, put three kids through through or in college um, the benefits, both a very technical education, our first graduate with an engineering degree, and that ability to really rationalize and solve problems. But the next to going through a liberal arts education, um, to me, has been fascinating. Obviously, it wasn't my own background, but it was. It's been fascinating to watch how they can really be inspired to learn and to think. Um, Because I think, and this is what I say to my kids, their jobs that they're going to wind up loving haven't even been invented. And so the best skills that they can get is a real thirst for learning, is a real thirst for problem solving, but it's thinking and continuous education. And I think those are the people who will be the most successful um, going forward.
0: Let me ask you one final question. I've um, been pretty consistent in doing this and asking them. And you sort of touched on it already, but if you were to give your 20-year-old self advice today, what advice would you give yourself?
1: You know, I, I would give my 20-year-old advice: um, go for it um i would say go for it in every way take those risks take advantage of opportunities um push yourself beyond um i think we all find places where we we fall into labels whether given to ourselves or from others um push don't back away from creativity I think when we're young and we enter the workforce, we, we feel like we should look like those around us, um, you know, put put forward your unique talent, your uniqueness that differentiates you. I think that which differentiates you is actually your superpower, and I don't think we realize that early enough in our careers. And, and use your voice. Speak up. Well, I think those is, uh, that is great
0: advice. So, Jody, I can't thank you enough for doing the podcast and GPG Advisors for sponsoring it and really appreciate the time and hope our paths cross again. Great.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye.